We're going to follow the rationalist attempt a bit further before moving on to empiricism in the interest of epistemology. After all, empiricism lowers the standards of justification required for knowledge. It tells us to be content with probability, since when it comes to matters of fact and existence, as opposed to mere tautologies, that's the best we can ever get. The higher the probability for the belief, given our evidence, the better. But empiricist justification is not, as it is for rationalism, an all-or-nothing affair. It's a matter of degrees, and even highly justified beliefs can be false. What rationalism tries to accomplish through the faculty of pure reason is impossible, according to empiricism. So the best argument for empiricism, it seems to me, is to dash rationalism's hopes. And in order to do that, we've got to see what rationalism accomplished, or at any rate, tried to accomplish, but didn't. There were a few more first-person present tense propositions that Descartes was able to indubitably know merely on the basis of his thinking them true. These were all what philosophers characterize as phenomenological propositions. That is, descriptions that a conscious subject makes about the contents of his or her own consciousness. For example, seems to me that it's intolerably hot in the room that it seems to me that I'm in. Notice that this proposition isn't about the temperature of a room. It's not about a room at all, but rather it's about me, about how the world seems to me at this moment. And this phenomenological proposition is true, even if I'm not in the intolerably hot room that it seems to me I'm in. Once again, says Descartes, the very act of thinking these propositions are true logically excludes their being false. There's no gap for error to wedge its way in. Remember these phenomenological descriptions because they're going to be relevant in a later chapter when we consider what philosophers and scientists call the hard problem of consciousness. So far, all of Descartes' indubitable propositions have been about himself. Does he ever manage to change the subject? Yes, in fact, his next subject is God, namely that he exists. And here his strategy becomes somewhat different because here, or so he wants to claim, he's dealing with a necessarily true proposition. Remember that the faculty of reason is the faculty of perceiving logical entailments. So far, he's been looking at propositions whose truth are entailed by the act of thinking them. Now he's going to switch to the logical entailments between concepts. He's going to claim that the proposition God exists is akin to the proposition unicorns have one horn. Just as the concept of a unicorn entails having one horn, so too the concept of God entails existence. In other words, he's going to put forth a version of the argument that philosophers call the ontological argument for God's existence which is a poor name since any proof for something's existence is an ontological proof. A better name for it is the conceptual proof for God's existence, trying to make of God's existence 
a conceptual truth, a necessary truth. In any case, Descartes wasn't the first to argue conceptually for God's existence. The first, so far as we know, was the theologian Anselm of the 11th century, happened to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Here's how Descartes' version goes. Consider the concept of a being that is the sum of all perfections. What does that mean? Well, consider a property and whether a thing is a better thing if it possesses this property or if it lacks it. If it's a better thing for having the property, say being knowledgeable, and if the property admits of degrees, as being knowledgeable does, then attribute that property to the highest degree, omniscience, to the sum of all perfections. What about being powerful? Yes, of course. So the sum of all perfections is omnipotent. What about being moral, having the virtues of justice, mercy, loving kindness? Yes, all must belong to the sum of all perfections and to the highest degree. And what about existence? Is a being a better being, an improved being for having or lacking existence? Clearly, for having existence. After all, a thing that lacks existence is nothing. Therefore, the sum of all perfections exists. And I've seen lots of students who have heard this argument, and I bet, like you, you're not convinced. I hope you're at least impressed with how ingenious this argument is. But I've never met anyone, even quite confirmed theists, that is, God-believers, who think that this argument works, who don't suspect that there's some kind of dirty logical trick being played. Although exactly what's wrong here is very hard to say. In fact, it was the 18th century's Immanuel Kant himself, as I mentioned a few chapters back, a God-believer, who put his finger on what's wrong with this particular argument. It treats existence like a property, on a par with other properties like being well-read or having an opposable thumb. But existence plays a very different logical function in logic. If you happen ever to have taken symbolic logic, you know existence is not treated as a property, but as a quantifier. There are a host of logical absurdities you can derive if you treat existence as a property, as this particular argument does. The philosopher Wittgenstein warned us that we often are led astray by language, by confusing the various linguistic forms and functions that language plays. And this is an example. Still, ingenious nevertheless for Descartes to pull it out of his pocket at this particular point. And then, what's his next step after he gets that he exists and God exists? Well, getting the existence of the sum of all perfections gets Descartes a whole lot, ontologically speaking. The sum of all perfections cancels out that falsifying source of all our empirical information. After all, if empirical input truly was all false, with no way for us to be able to discover that it's all false, Faults, that situation would be inconsistent, argues Descartes, with the existence of the sum of all perfections. The sum of all perfections and having loving kindness surely would not want to fill us with incorrigibly false belief. I think at best, this can be regarded as a merely probable consequence from Descartes' proposition that the sum of all perfections exists. 
but Descartes clearly regarded it as more than merely probable, as in fact indubitable. In this way, Descartes is able to claim to indubitably know that the external world, the world of physical objects of various shapes and sizes and positions in space, exists. But it all rests on this fallacious argument for God's existence. Did any rationalist do better? In the next chapter, I want to consider the philosopher who made every claim for the faculty of reason that has ever been made before we entirely give up on rationalism's claim to be able to discover a priori the nature of reality. I think that we ought to take a look, however briefly, at this philosopher. His name was Baruch Spinoza.